Welcome to a special edition of the Book Riot Podcast, which is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading. This is our annual year in review show, episode 344. Today is Thursday, December 19th, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from the tail end of mm-hmm. 2019 from, and from bookriot.com. Rebecca, it's been a It has. Year. It's, you know, it, it has flown by and been filled with all kinds of happenings. So I'm I'm looking forward to reviewing some of the things that happened this year. It didn't seem like that wild of a year in publishing. And then I went back through a year's worth of our trusty podcast agenda document that's now like 700 pages long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and It always feels that way. Like, yeah, there's not gonna be much like, oh, wait, that happened. Oh, wait, mm-hmm. that happened too? I can't yeah. believe it. Before we get to specific stories, um... Was there a big picture? Is there any big picture interesting stuff? Like, where are we? We sometimes mm. ask this question, where are we in the world of books? I think the last couple of years we sort of said, we're steady as she going it a little bit. Um, and in the macro sense, it feels like books are kind of how books have been for the last couple of years on a macro scale. Yeah, I agree. It didn't feel like there were any big shakeups this year, no big changes or developments, like nobody launched. It wasn't like the year that Scribd and Oyster launched and we were going to try out all you can eat right. reading apps or anything like that. And also no major crises in terms of like the health of the industry itself. It does feel like steady as she goes. And as we get into one of our big stories of the year, I think there's some potential for the next couple years to be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um. Do you, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the big story? What What is the biggest story of the year? Is there the, what, the most important book-related story of the year? We don't have that. You have the biggest story that wasn't, but then it turned into something that was, but <laughs> it, it did not conversely then become the biggest yeah, story of the year, which I found I interesting. I thought it was going to be the biggest story of the year. It was that Barnes & Noble is right. selling. Uh, and there were definitely some shenanigans around that, you know, like the rumors that they had had that they had made a deal, but then they backed out because of stuff that was going on at the corporate level and inappropriate behavior of some kind. And then Elliott Advisors came in, uh, Barnes & Noble accepted the offer. And it it sounds like some things are starting to change at Barnes & Noble, but there haven't been any radical um, shifts. And, you know, Barnes & Noble didn't close a jillion stores. They also haven't announced that they're going to open a whole bunch of new things yet. It's like, this is a big deal that Barnes & Noble has sold, but it hasn't caused, there have not been big effects of that big deal. I honestly did not feel like there was a big publishing story of the year. There were several notable things that we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a macro way, things that will actually affect the underpinnings, pillars of the earth, can call it kinds of foundational transformations. If Barnes & Noble had gone out of business, Mm -hmm. that would have been a big deal. If it would have been sold to an Amazon or one of those, it would have been a big deal. If it would have been sold to someone who immediately came out with a big, bold new vision for Barnes & Noble, that would have been a big deal. But being sold to you know, a British book chain, which is kind of seems to have a steady as we go kind of mindset is basically the status quo is in place, which is not nothing, but it's also not super exciting or earth shattering. And I think for those of, uh, sometimes I'm in this camp, sometimes I'm not, it sort of depends, wondering about how much of a bulwark Barnes and Noble actually does serve against Mm. something bad happening (laughs) (laughs) to, to what we like about books and reading. 
I guess this is the minimum viable happiness <laughs> outcome. It's like they're still around. They're run by a bookstore. They're going to be kind of doing what they want to think. On the other hand, I was hoping for innovation. Yeah. Maybe we'll see that. I don't know. So I can see why it's both the biggest story and also kind of, nah, we'll see. It's, yeah, minimum viable bulwark, I think, is the way to <laughs> is the way to think about it. That, and maybe there will be innovation. I would have liked to see some innovation, um, but yeah, there just wasn't a lot of like, you know, James, um, what is his name? That the head of know. Elliot Advisors, the guy who's running, yeah, oh right, the guy who's running Elliot Advisors. He didn't, or who was running Barnes and Noble for Elliot Advisors. He didn't like roll in and clean house and have a bunch of new initiatives straight out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it will just remain to be determined. James Don, Daunt, I was I like, Blunt is, is not right. That's the singer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, that would be interesting <laughs> if James Blunt had bought or Emily Barnes Blunt, Emily Blunt, and John Krasinski yeah. by Barnes and Noble. Now that's now, now you got it. Now we're cooking. Now we're cooking. Um, I guess the only other one, and our next episode is going to be um, with Amanda Nelson's going to join us. The books that captured mm-hmm. the decade in books and reading, which we'll talk a little bit more there. And one thing we might end up talking about there, it's at least on my long list of things to talk about, possibly is the drumbeat of Trump books, the, mm. the fears, the fire and furies, the Comeys. That was another trend. I'm not sure it added up to anything. I don't think it did. I thought about putting some of those Trump books on this list, but nothing really became of it. And it's interesting to be recording this on the day after the impeachment vote and thinking about that there were all of these books that contained material that could have lent to that outcome. But ultimately, none of the revelations in any of those things seemed to make any difference. So that I think that's also a big story that wasn't. They sold well, like Fire and Fury sold well, Fear sold very yes. well, but they didn't have a cultural impact or, no. or touch the political landscape in a meaningful way. And you and I have compared them as they've come out to, you know, the all the presence men being the mm-hmm. touchstone, right? Like the, here's the example of the one that will endure over time. The thing is we're still in the middle of this Trump story, whatever it's going to be. He hasn't resigned. He hasn't been you know, voted out of office. He hasn't served out his second term. He hasn't burst into f- a big flaming bag of <laughs> McDonald's French fries. Like none of the, we're still in the middle of this. So until we're done and someone can write the big book or the book that actually does break the the increasingly orange camel's back, they're all kind of in process documents, mm-hmm. right? Like this, this is like the middle books in a series. It's not the beginning. It's not the end. They sell. People are interested in as they go. But they're not going to be the totems that I think we're going to carry into the future until one of them is the thing that makes the change or is the chronicle of what the hell actually just happened here. Um, So maybe at some point we'll get that book, I hope sooner rather than later, for a variety of reasons and political affiliations. But I think that's a thing that's going to continue until it's done, and it's just in the middle um, for now. Let's do a sponsor, and then we'll come back and get some actual stories. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven 
great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. All right. So the biggest story that wasn't, if you would have told us that Barnes & Noble sold this year, we'd say that is for sure the most interesting story. And it kind of was. Turkeys of the year, I think two of them are related and one of them is a different trend. So I have we have three on here. Mine's mm-hmm. a question mark I that agree. I added on. Of the of the turkeys, our final our three turkeys for the three finalists are the Nobel Prize is double where we oops also recognize a genocide apologist. Sorry guys, we read some conspiracy theory books that we didn't do our homework on. Um the Booker tying itself into knots with a tie um to award both Margaret Atwood and um Bernadine Evaristo's to share the Booker Prize. And then Macmillan shooting itself in the foot in libraries as innocent bystanders and a lot of our time and attention. Of those three, do you have a front turkey? <laughs> a front turkey. Um, I think the Macmillan ebooks embargo is the most important of these turkeys because yeah. it touches libraries and libraries touch readers access to material and this was just really hot button and i think ignited and amplified conversations that librarians had been having around ebook purchasing and pricing and lending but brought them out in a bigger way and some of those libraries as we saw even did write letters to their patrons so this conversation went beyond just the literary yeah. and the publishing community i think that's the most important one the nobel prize one I think is the biggest in like that, that is the biggest Turkey um, just because it's been so there are it's turkeys all the way down that they're Mm -hmm. 
were issues before, so they didn't give a prize in 2018. Then they finally come back. They give the double prize, but one of the prizes is to a genocide apologist. It's about conspiracy theories. Now there are people leaving the Nobel Prize um, Committee, as we were discussing last week, who went in to help make the changes to try to improve things. And they were like, this is taking too long, (laughs) y'all. We're out. Uh, It's just been kind of a facepalm situation for years now watching what's going on with the Nobel and the Booker was just a like, mm, man, you really didn't think about how this was going to land. I didn't, I think the Booker prize is really, that's an unfortunate decision. More of a bad yeah, look. Ex- yeah. Than yeah. It's a bad a look. Um, unintentionally, had unintentional negative impact, I think, from that decision, right. uh, just a failure to have the perspective or imagine what, public response was going to be. But the Nobel Prize stuff, there's just kind of no excuse for how many turkeys are loose (laughs) over there. I'm going to go with, I think, the Macmillan eBooks stuff and the broader uh, thing going on in publishing with trying to figure out what do we do with digital lending through libraries Mm -hmm. in a way that serves the library's needs and patrons' needs, but also allows publishers to make whatever they need to make for it to be sustainable. Like that is a problem, right. an actual problem to be solved that impacts readers. And so I, I care about that one the most. Yeah, I care about that one the most. And we on, on this show, or I'll speak for myself, have been, I, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to Macmillan than many I've seen online. I don't know that I would sign um, lock, stock and barrel with what they want to do. But my own digital lending habits have changed to such a degree that I sort of can recognize from my own use case that there's something different going on here. Like I was looking at my year in reading and I track where I read stuff from. There's a lot of mm-hmm. Libby's, a lot of Libby's, and a lot fewer Amazons, Powell's, Apple Books than there have as a percentage. If I'm at all representative, that portends a major change. And the difference in digital lending versus print lending – we don't have to go on all the differences here, but from my point of view, the ease of checking out and returning means that my own personal turnover is way higher than it used to be, way higher than it would be if it was just print books. And what that means for libraries and publishing, I think, is an open question still. And McMillan tried to answer it, and I can sort of see where they were coming from, but it did not go like they wanted to go. And I think the messaging has been tone deaf Mm -hmm. to put it charitably i think they haven't had anyone come out any other publisher come out and want to sort of say i'm a turkey too with them um so they've been a little bit hung out to dry i'm not sure what the future is because it is the the only reason to to buy something from a kindle versus get it from libby is speed and it's just as easy on your phone you don't have to drive to anywhere and we talked to Mike Shatskin for an episode of Annotated, and the great war, the great competition in book selling has been who can get the right book to the right person at the right time the fastest. And Libby is now as fast as Kindle, save for hold times. And the only way to lengthen hold times is to reduce the number of copies or jack up the prices. And Macmillan has done a little bit of both over time. I don't know what the way forward is here. I don't know that the current status quo can exist. I don't think Macmillan's model, the public is going to be happy with. I don't know what the way out here. So this one's going to continue to gobble. That's my mm-hmm. take on this particular turkey. I don't know. <laughs> the, bar, the booker next year could give a prize to someone that we're all like, oh, that makes sense. The Nobel Prize, it's like nine people in a room. Like Theoretically, they could shoot it. The Macmillan thing is a systemic problem. Yeah. and Or at least Macmillan's presenting as a problem. Whether it's an actual problem, I guess, is a thing. But that's a systemic 
thing and the changes, it's a, a, a pillar that's being moved around in the way that people read. And that matters. That really does. <laughs> I like it's going to continue to gobble. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, I, I would like a situation where publishers and authors can still make money and produce the books I like to read. And libraries can provide service to their patrons in a way they feel good about. Right now, it's hard to see how both of those things work under the current mm-hmm. model. I'll leave yeah, it, it definitely that. remains um, to be determined. Now. It'll be interesting to see where we are at the end of 2020 doing this show and what's happened. It feels like there's potential for this story to be different over the next year. If you let's look into your crystal ball. Ah. We're at the end of 2020. Who has blinked in the Macmillan Library ebook situation? Who who's changed? Has have libraries in the public sort of swallowed it? Has Macmillan blinked? What has changed? If something has changed this time next year about this story, what do you think will have changed? I hate to say it, but I think if anyone, I actually don't think anybody's going to blink and like publicly get, throw their hands up and give in. But mm. it seems like the momentum around the library response has really slowed. And I don't know if that's just that it's the holidays and there are other things to pay mm. attention to. And also like right. the president's getting impeached and there's just other, you know, like there's just others. Not much oxygen left right. in the room. Like there's just that. other yeah. stuff going on. So maybe we come back after the first of the year and more library systems are starting to mobilize around this. I think if that happens, Macmillan may very well decide that they need to do something back down in some way. But if it stays as quiet as it is right now on December 19th, I don't think Macmillan is going to have to make any changes and libraries will either just continue to not buy Macmillan ebooks or will quietly blink and start repurchasing. Yeah. That's interesting. It's really, it, it seems like it's really quieted down, which is a little bit of a bummer, but also it, it could come back. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, if you're Macmillan, I guess what do you hope that library? If you're Macmillan, you hope libraries find it painful enough on their reader services side that they have to buy Macmillan eBooks again, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Your worst case for Macmillan, I guess, is librarians find you know what we can service our clients fine without Macmillan titles, right? Mm-hmm. Which could happen. Which could there happen. There are a lot of books in the world, and that speaks to our question about like. If publishers had it their way, would they have to service libraries at all? Like in their heart of hearts, do they want to be in the business of providing books to libraries that people can check out for no additional cost? Not free. I know it's not free because of taxes. But it doesn't cost me anything additionally than the tax I've already paid to to read 10 books on Libby. Would they rather me have to go out and buy the Macmillan books I want to hear about? How much is li- How much are libraries really a portal of discovery that builds value over time? That's the things librarians say. Um, and I could I could believe that it's true, mm-hmm. but I also could believe it's not true. I, I, we just don't have any data yeah. either way. All Speaking right. of libraries, here, yeah. my favorite trend of the year, we're seeing more of this in the last couple of months, is libraries eliminating their late fees and overdue fines, especially for kids. But many library systems have just eliminated them wholesale. And I love that. Talk about picking up steam. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw several dominoes large metropolitan dominoes fall in a row, really hard upon each other where it didn't seem like there must have even been much internal debate as quickly as it happened, or it's been going on and simmering for a while. But Chicago and Memphis and San Francisco all seem to fall in line in relatively short order, and Boston Public Library Mm -hmm. and many others. Um, It feels overdue, Yeah, uh, pardon (laughs) the pun, um, for this to happen. I recently got 
my own kids their own library cards, and there are no late fees associated with them here in Portland. And basically, you can't just check out more books if you've got stuff overdue. You have to bring them back. You don't have to fork over eight, ten, twelve bucks um, to, in addition to bringing the books back. So you have incentive to bring them back. It seems to me like a win, largely all the way around. There might be some revenue shortfalls. Um, that doesn't seem like it, on the whole, between collection development, people keeping the books because there's no incentive to bring them back if they can't pay the fine, and just the cost of collecting fines itself is onerous. And frankly, libraries don't want to be in the business of being bill collectors. Right. And I can totally understand that's not what they signed up for. They want to be servicing their patrons and doing the best they can, not shaking eight-year-olds down for six bucks. So. Um, I think this is something that we're all glad about. And a vestige, I, I wonder if, if we invented the public library now, if late things would late fees would be even a thing we would think about doing. Hmm. It does feel like a vestige of a former time uh, of public services. Yeah, I agree. I think that having other consequences in place, like if you have overdue materials, you can't take out new books. Like that makes sense. But charging money like when you really step back and think about the purpose of a public library and the patron the patron who is least likely to be able to pay their Mm -hmm. late fee is the same patron that most needs the services of the library to access information and material that like if a four dollar late fee or a twenty dollar late fee or whatever it is is preventing you from being able to like take the thing back to the library, get the materials you need, you're likely the kind of customer, the kind of patron who needs the library and yes. isn't going to be getting their information by buying books um, or may not have internet access at home, might need to use the services at the public library. So if the library exists as a public good to serve those those patrons, then tying it up with a person's economic status really mm-hmm. does not make sense. Um, I... I would like to think that if we invented the public library today, we would have other social contracts around late and overdue or lost material that would not prevent someone from continuing to use the library if they couldn't pay in some way. It does, it does seem, in our modern understanding of privilege um, and pay and marginalization, that this is not how we would design right. it. But yeah. I, maybe, maybe I'm giving us too much credit. Um, speaking of bilking the people who could get the most out of reading <laughs> and can at least afford to pay, that that's the inverse of one of our least favorite trends of the year. We got three, um, you know, the trilogy of evil here. The ongoing policy, policing, bans, metering, charging people in prison to access books, restricting their access to book, um, using suspect security, quote-unquote, guidelines to keep books out of people's hands who who are in jail. We hate this. We don't like this to happen. Um, I haven't heard, I asked a call for, has anyone ever heard of a story of like someone doing something nefarious in jail because they were inspired by Anne of Green Gables or something like this? Mm -hmm. I've never heard of it. I'd be surprised if we ever did. But something that seems to have picked up some momentum and finding prisoners and books as a revenue stream for for prisons needs to go um, away. Keeping books out of the hands of kids where the books have LBGTQ plus themes also is bad. I hate the trend also of the stealth 
as you say, mm-hmm. stealthy attempts by unnamed sources, secret meetings, anonymous complaints, those kinds of things. It didn't cowards meet our policies, all. and the policies aren't published anywhere. Right, yeah. and the mechanism for publishing the policies or saying or reviewing yeah. the who who reviews the reviewers right. um, here is very much a thing that's happened. The the waterfall down of resistance to inclusive books hitting the final couple rungs where they can in public schools and public library systems. I hope this is just a dead cat bounce and eventually this will too this this too will go away. But we need to comment it on here. And also related to that, um, people protesting and having protesting drag queen story hours, having events canceled, having them moved into different places. Um, that picked up steam in a way I didn't foresee. We heard earlier stories. We did a story on Annotated about Drag Queen Story Hour and initial protests. And it seemed like it seemed like we'd gotten over the initial resistance to the idea, but I was dead wrong. And maybe it's my position of where I read these stories from. I was surprised to see that not only did opposition continue, but increased and got more vocal and more physical and a lot of these programs have shut down because it's exhausting and dangerous and um, disheartening to have this much resistance to something that is an aggregate good um, on the whole. So I'm very, that's I, in, in a way that's my, I feel saddest about that because I, mm-hmm. it felt so pure, yeah. I guess at the beginning and to see it turned around feels like a real step backward. Yeah, I agree. That one is the one that hurts the most um, in I guess in in the overall like elements of the story that you've got kids mm-hmm. getting a chance to just do something as fun as go to a drag queen story hour with the built-in exposure to people that they may not have ever seen before or yeah. or a kid who's sitting there thinking that looks like fun to me and I didn't know that was an option that's available in my life um, and now they know that that is a valid identity and a valid way to express yourself. That's a really powerful thing to expose kids to. And and that's why people are upset about it, yeah. of course. People who are afraid of these things are upset about it. Um, the other stuff I think is disappointing but in predictable grossly human ways of, you know, mm-hmm. trying to profit the prison stuff, like trying to profit off of people who are literally disenfranchised and then the use of like political power and privilege in academic situations to like just stealthily try to re- to remove LGBTQ books from kids' shelves. Um, really predictable, really disappointing stuff, but not as um, not as heart stringy. Certainly, yeah. very, all of these are very important. Like, don't send me a letter about how I'm not upset about any of these. I'm very upset about all of them. Uh, but the drag queen story hour one just really was uh, like, do we seriously like this is what we're going to do as humans in 2019? I would love to not hear anything else about any of these stories. And the the prisons, the stuff in prisons and the LGBTQ books, like these are not stories that started in 2019. These are problems that um, the public and the reading public has had for a long time, but they seemed to really increase or maybe just the attention that we've been paying to them increased in 2019. And I'm glad to have that coming up in the public dialogue so that action can be taken around it. I guess that's the silver lining there is that the more aware we are of these kinds of things, the more opportunity that we have to try to do something about it. And there's something too. I mean, you're right. Like in terms of actual import, I don't know that we want to parse Mm-mm. one versus the other. That's not what we're trying to do. But there, 
I think part of the Drag Queen Story Hour being so sad to me is, you know, how jubilant drag can be, and in this situation is, and people putting their bodies on the line and going into libraries and taking a risk and taking a chance and then seeing when it's gone well in places, how well it's gone, how much the kids have enjoyed it. What What a symbol of inclusion it is. And I think the human cost is just easier to see than with these structural ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I interviewed some people for Annotated that were doing Drag Queen Story Hour, so I feel pr- closer to it personally than some of the others. Um, I don't know. To see people in drag reading to kids, having a great time, and then seeing people with hateful signs outside of it, it just hits you hard. It yeah. just, it, it really does. The visuals just hit especially hard. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Things we like to see more of, we can maybe get through this one quickly. This is a Rebecca one, so why don't you tell us about this? We want to see more of. Yeah, a couple months ago, we saw that Patagonia was going to go 100% digital with galleys of their upcoming books. Patagonia publishes some books, and they are no longer going to do printed galleys, paper Mm. galleys. Um, And I was excited about that. I think you and I are both fans of um, how Patagonia runs its business, or at least very interested bystanders in what Patagonia is doing as a corporation and how Yvonne Chouinard has built that. They've always had a focus on uh, giving back and also on trying to run a business in 
as positive or at least non-damaging a way as possible for the planet. Um, As a person who gets like literally hundreds of galleys in the mail, thousands over the course of a year, more than a hundred in a month um, delivered to my door and most of them get recycled or donated, I would love to see more publishers go 100% digital with their galleys or at least really significantly decrease paper galleys like make us request it if we want to print right. one um, it's just so so many trees and then so much water usage and so like the carbon footprint of producing paper galleys is has to be bananas and it I don't think is really justifiable um, at this point with the technology that we have. I would love to see more publishers go that way. Yeah, that that's another one kind of like the library finds. Like if we were creating the world anew mm-hmm. and we were trying to get review text in front of people, I don't think anybody today would be like, you know, we should print these out and send them, <laughs> shotgun them out into the world with you know, right. little to no guarantee <laughs> that they're getting to the right person. One of the, I've been reading a bunch of year-end stuff, and there's been a, quite a bit of talk about, like, this is the year that cl- climate change trended you oh, know, yeah. in a real mm-hmm. way. And we see a piece from time to time about the environmental impact of publishing and printing books. I do wonder if there's a climate moment coming for print. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that much about the environmental impact of where my printed books come from. But in the grand accounting that we seem to be doing, and are we sure we want to do it this way? Is this sustainable? I don't, what are the what are publishers' practices around green, uh, using re- sustainable sources for paper and printing and ink and energy and all the all the things we care about when we talk about making anything? Our hamburger gets a lot more scrutiny than my hardback. Is that good? Is that fine? Or is it not fine? Um, I am curious about this, and this is one crack in that maybe wider story of like. Is it good to print a book? Um, I don't know. Uh, Speaking of things we'd also like to see data for, celebrity book clubs sell books, shruggy emoji to the sky. (laughs) Ah, sure. We want this to... Here's the... I was looking... I I didn't think to put this on here. I'm so glad you did. Do we want it to be true? Let's say you you got to change the universe, like in Avengers Endgame. You pull one stone out and like... Do we want it to be true that celebrity book clubs sell books, or would we rather it be true that some books just sell for organic word of mouth reasons? Which of those two worlds do we prefer? Is that a weird question? It's an interesting question. Um, Or does it not matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. I think it ultimately doesn't matter because I think celebrity book clubs are like morally and ethically neutral as a concept, but many of the, maybe not many, some of the celebrities getting the most attention for their book clubs are seemingly giving like mindful attention to the Mm. kinds of titles they select, or at least to being diverse and inclusive in the titles that they select. And so in that case, I would be good with it being true that celebrity book clubs sell books if they are helping expose a really large audience of readers to books that, they, that the readers might not otherwise discover. Now, we mm. have not yet like seen a moment where I think that that's the case. Most of the books that these celebrities um, are amplifying are books that also have huge marketing campaigns around them. But like if yeah. Reese Witherspoon picked a book from Grey $2 Radio or Grey like, Wolf <laughs> Press or something, yeah, right. and then it sold 2 million copies, mm-hmm. I would be delighted. 
So, yeah, I think I would be okay with it. I don't really care if it's true or not. I would like to know if it's true or not. But if it is the case that celebrity book clubs sell books, like, I'd like to know. And then maybe that also is feedback to the celebrities running those book clubs. Like, this is actually having a measurable impact. So you have some responsibility here to think about what you're doing. You could be a benevolent influencer, so to speak, right? You know, in that kind of a way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do wonder if celebrities being a thing about recommending books actually sells more books in total or just distributes them differently. Um, And I'm not sure about hmm. that, right? Like, were the people going to buy X number of books anyway, and it's just rerouting those book purchases? Or does the actual does the tide of book purchasing go up in a meaningful way? I don't remember. We weren't around doing this enough in the heyday of Oprah to know. Were the quarters of Oprah in her heyday selling more books in average than the year before? Right? That is I guess a you'd have great to look at question. I would love that information. My guess would be like in general that this just shifts the book buying attention to yeah. the celebrity ones, but rather than raising the tide overall. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to know. Um Whimsy of the year. Oh, man, this is my favorite story. Um, and I should have pulled up the link so I could have the yeah. the guy's full name. But we had this story way back in early 2019 about a man, I think, in or near Knoxville, Tennessee, who had retired. He had a lot of money. And the thing he was doing with his money was building an ancient lore theme park mm-hmm. about a group of people or creatures called Nobbins uh, and... It was like across the street from the Walmart. (laughs) Incredible stuff. (laughs) And uh, we were like, how is this not going to be copyright infringement? Because this sounds an awful lot like Middle Earth. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he had to put it on hold for other reasons. But the... I just wish to salute this man's deep whimsy of like, I am old and rich and this is the thing I'm going to do. Now, like, you, yes, you could make more impact in the world if you spent that money doing other things. Uh, But the whimsy of, and and like, it's very gutsy, I think, to be like, I'm just going to rip off Lord of the Rings, basically, and we're going to call the hobbits nobbins. Gutsy, malfeasant, criminal. (laughs) You know, you could go a couple different ways with that. (laughs) It's bold. Is it bold or is it obtuse? (laughs) It's hard to know the difference sometimes. Maybe both. Yeah, maybe both. Boldly obtuse, obtusely bold. (laughs) (laughs) It was certainly the most something story of the year. I I find myself looking at it and making and feeling like it's some sort of Rorschach test. Yeah, I don't know what my face is. What you react to to, it says something about you, but I don't know what exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I can't really be appalled by it because it's no. also not like the Tolkien estate needs more money. No, no, um, no. But then, you know, principles and copyright matter, what, whatever. Like, I think this is uh, something that actually it didn't happen, but it's a relatively harmless concept. Um, I just was delighted that we got to talk, to, to talk about it. And I do too. I also like that ancient lore is different than just lore. Like, is it all lore ancient? Is it like not modern lore? I guess that's an urban myth. Well, I guess you could just like be, that. it could be old without being ancient. Like, there's old lore, right? Without ancient lore. <laughs> I feel like ancient is somehow implied in lore. Mm. Anyway, that's a, there's just, there was something really both innocent <laughs> and 
avaricious <laughs> yeah, about think, this. That that co- that combination yeah, makes it hard to understand. It's very confusing. I do think you're right about the Rorschach thing. Like, I don't know what my face is supposed to do <laughs> right. about this story. Am I supposed to like cheer him on? Am mm. I supposed to be mad about it? I kind of just want to go. Like, I wish it existed so I could go see what a Nobbin looks like. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it was that was a fun one. Uh, Heroes of the Year. This is a corporate award to all the body of librarians and elected officials who fought book challenges. There's a bunch of you out there, too many to name. Um, that is in the book world of books and reading the least glamorous and maybe the most important work being done um, out there. And so shout out to all of you. Before we get to In Memoriam, I had another trend that's Ooh. a story kind of made up of a whole bunch of different stories. The adaptation Gold Rush continues and i think we may have hit peak around the time of the billion with a b dollars speaking of lord Mm -hmm. of the rings and middle earth we saw the end of game of thrones um on hbo this year we see Watchmen. we saw his dark materials launch we are having uh, the foundation series and a whole bunch of others and the crown jewel and that adaptation gold rush is still to come and that's the amazon prequel story i just saw today that someone was cast as young galadriel which is i think the first time we've actually had a name associated with one of the characters there um so i don't know that any one of those stood out enough but together the adaptation gold rush is certainly one of the stories of 2019 um maybe the the most peak story, the most extra story <laughs> in books and reading is everything's being adapted. Yeah, I thought about putting something related to adaptations on the agenda because we've talked for a couple of years about like, okay, this is as many adaptations as we can possibly handle. We've been right? wrong. Like, we've, we've sold it short and we've lost right. our shirts a million times selling adaptations short. <laughs> we have. I think it's just going to continue until like for as long as the streaming thing is expanding as long as the streaming universe is expanding this adaptation trend is going to continue and when the streaming universe starts to contract which i think it has to inevitably do Mm -hmm. i think we'll see a slowdown then but um which it does feel like most of the big properties have been snatched up so where it goes from here is going to be really interesting yeah let's do a break and we're gonna talk about the best of our rest our favorite non-book things from the year but let's do a sponsor Okay, how do you want to do this? We don't, we, our, our categories don't correlate. Well, there's TV, food, <laughs> well, personal, just... which I was uncomfortable with the minute I saw personal colon. I was like, I'm not going to look directly at it. It's just much. like miscellaneous. It's miscellaneous. Uh-huh. Okay, um, sure. I don't, I, well, usually we just bounce back and forth. But oh, you go first then. Okay. You go first. All right. Where am I going to start? Um, this is not a thing that was new this year, but a thing that it was new to me is a podcast called Dissect that does close readings and deep dives into music. Mm. And they did a, an, I think, eight-episode bonus season entirely about the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Oh, come on. That, for you, that is, <laughs> that's not even catnip. I know. That's like catnip laced with, I don't know, Godiva <laughs> chocolate dipped in, uh, and was, fried. It was the most perfect yeah. cultural experience that I had this year. Each episode was about one or two of the songs, and they would go literally like l- line by line of the lyrics and be like, and this is a reference to, and Lauren Hill is perfect for this because there's like history and biblical references and then this is a thing from this other song and Mm. like there's just so much packed in that having someone dissect 
like what each little line of the rap meant and that this is a reference to this thing that was happening in her cultural life. And this like the hook in this song is a cover of this Wu-Tang Clan song that was a cover of the Barbara Streisand version, mm. which was a cover of like the Pride Diana Prejudice. Ross original. <laughs> yeah, like it was right. <laughs> there was just some really mind blowing, fascinating stuff about um, the music history, too, and all of the different musical influences that she brought in. And then you keep remembering over and over that she was 21 when she wrote the thing, when she wrote that album. It was just incredible. It was a really great listening experience. And I learned so much. That's been one of my favorite albums for the 20 something years that it's been out. Um, And it made going back into that album really Mm. rich. I really loved it. I'm just going to bounce around. Um, Speaking of the deep fried catnip for yourself, um, (laughs) and you went here with me. I did. In Portland. To Matt's Barbecue Tacos, mm. that's on is Hawthorne Street here in Southeast Portland, not too far from my house. Don't be creepy. It's barbecue and tacos, and they're fantastic. My yeah, favorite new-to-me thing to eat this year. If you happen to find yourself in Portland, go look for Matt's Barbecue Tacos. They were, they're great. I've been several times. I think about them way more than I should. Um, I love them. There you go. That's my favorite food thing of the year. My favorite- it's tough because people can't get it. And, it's but true. What am I going to do? I know. I'm still thinking about the chocolate babka you talked about last year. Which I've had twice this year, just (laughs) by the way. Um, My favorite food thing was a cookbook called Sister Pie uh, Mm. by Lisa Ludwinski, who owns a bakery also called Sister Pie in Detroit. My summer project this year was to... Like, I'm a good cook and I've been intimidated by baking and biscuits and pie are like the things I was the most scared of, especially as a Southern cook. Um, So my summer project was like, I'm going to learn like to perfect buttermilk biscuits and I want to get over this fear of making my own pie dough. And uh, my friend Josh Christie at Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine, is an avid baker, and he recommended Sister Pie to me as a great cookbook for the basics, but also because there's something like interesting or different about most of the pie flavors. So like the apple pie is basically a classic apple pie, but there's a little gouda in the dough and a little sage in the filling. So it's like just a little interesting and savory. Um, So I spent my summer and now well into the fall and winter working on biscuits from – I'm using Allison Roman's Buttermilk Biscuit Recipe from dining in and working on pie and I have cooked more than half I've made more than half of the mm. pies in the sister pie cookbook they're organized seasonally so you have spring and summer pies and fall and winter pies and then there are ev- like year round pies and I've dipped into some of those there are cookie recipes they also do creative salads and like some breakfast recipes it's just a great cookbook and one of the rare cookbooks in which the people in the photos and like the hands that you see doing the baking are not all white people. Hmm. Um, It's uh, people of color are still super underrepresented in the world of cookbooks. And it was very cool to pick up a cookbook and get to see the people who work at sister pie and get to learn great techniques. And I am now no longer afraid of making my own pie dough. Speaking of food, let's go back to so one of my New Year's resolutions that I did, by the way, mm. hooray me, to read 100 books, watch 100 movies, and listen to 100 new-to-me albums. Let me give you a couple of picks from that project, books we've talked about before. On the movies front, um, I think my favorite was a 2011 documentary called Hero Dreams of Sushi about a master sushi – it's a documentary about a master sushi maker in Tokyo, Japan, who's been doing it his whole life – and my pitch is, what if sushi, but your whole life? Mm. Um, and there's something about sushi that lends itself to a certain uh, 
almost cult like um like obsessive search for reverence. purity yeah. right like the the as close to the raw ingredients served at exactly the right time and exactly the right way and exactly the right person that is a pursuit of perfection that is both illusory and intoxicating. And I don't even like sushi, frankly. <laughs> but I found this documentary to be really interesting of committing yourself to one thing and really only caring about that thing. And on the whole, the documentary is celebratory. But there are a tinges of darkness you can see around the edges of what it costs um, to do something like that. And I thought it was really good. And it, it scratches a couple of my itches. One is armchair travel. Like I'm interested mm-hmm. in other places, but going there is almost beside the point for me. I am I, very interested in food as a gateway to learning about other cultures and ideas and histories and habits of mind and belief systems. And this was a really interesting entree there. And it's just beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful kind of thing. And the kind of thing that I wouldn't have watched if I wasn't trying to sort of put in reps, you know, like mm-hmm. if I'm just watching what a Avengers Endgame and Star Wars, I'd have enjoyed that, but I wouldn't have had this experience. So that that's my favorite there. I also really liked 45 Years, which is a film that's a domestic drama that actually ends up playing like a thriller and you don't see it coming. Um, it came out about eight years ago or no, 2013. It's a British film. I don't think you can get it anywhere. I had to get it through my library uh, in physical CD form like an animal. But it really snuck up on me, and it was fantastic. And I think, actually, Rebecca, you would like it. As someone who, the 45 years represents the 45 years this couple is married. Sold. <laughs> and the over the course of the couple weeks of them planning for their anniversary party, someone discovers there's a secret. Ooh. And it's very understated. It's not like a Gone Girl type of thing. But in a way, it's even more devastating because it's not flashy. Um, so that's I won't spoil it there. And then Michelle and I, I think we had the most surprising fun watching Booksmart at yes. home together one night. It just was fun. The kind of movie, you know, it's about smart, nerdy girls in their last weekend of high school and, you know, blowing it out while they have a time before going off to Stanford. And they, they realize that they maybe kept too many bullets in their holsters and trying to be smart and accomplished and maybe missed out and trying to catch up all at once. And I think Michelle and I both laughed simultaneously the most at this movie as any movie we watched this year. So that kind of under the radar, I think, on the whole Mm -hmm. this year. Um, So those are my three movie picks. And real quickly, just one music. And music is so subjective. I find that my own taste is so divergent than most people I know that it's even hard to recommend. But um, The Dip, it's a group out of Seattle. They're sort of a neo-funk soul band. Um, The Dip Delivers is their newest EP. You can find it on Spotify. If you like it, great. If not... Also fine, but that was my favorite discovery uh, in music of, of 2019. Yeah, I got a preview of that pick when you were recapping some of your, yes. best, your best discoveries from this Listen to 100 Albums project. And I've been listening to The Dip. We have a lot of overlap in our Yeah, um, you like musical. The Dip? I do. Yeah, okay, it's good. great. And that, um, I thought you would. The, that album by The War and the Treaty that you recommended. Ah, uh, yes. That's been one of my favorites for a couple of years. Um, co-sign on Booksmart. I also really loved it. I feel like it's like super bad, but smart and with like updated and with girls. Um, mm. I really, yes. Yeah. I really dug it on the TV front. I watched a lot of TV this year. Um, I really, I mean, I got into succession like everybody did, but you don't right. need that's like to- picking <clears throat> oxygen. Right. Like you don't need to, right. You don't need to tell, you don't need me to tell you how good succession is. Um, I also really loved, and I haven't seen nearly as much discussion about it on Becoming a God in Central Florida, yeah. which is on Showtime starring Kirsten Dunst and, um, oh, what's his name? One of the, 
very tall, handsome men who was on the Sookie Stackhouse HBO show and also on Big Little Lies. It's a Swedish last name. I have no idea. Skarsgård? Yes, Alexander Skarsgård. Thank you. Um, It's set in the like late 80s, early 90s around Orlando and Skarsgård is desperate to get out of his insurance job and he gets like sucked into an MLM's like scheme that's basically (laughs) Amway and Kirsten Dunst is his very frustrated sassy wife Um, something happens to him in the first episode and she ends up trying to like take over his attempt at an Amway empire basically and Mm. it's it is absurd and weird and so like it's the perfect thing for Kirsten Dunst. Like she gets to sneer at people and be sarcastic and use her resting Dunst face, like yeah, whatever that thing she has is. Yeah, it is perfect. It's like the essence of Kirsten Dunst. Um, and it's just a delightful skewering and satire of multi level marketing and those like almost religious promises that MLMs make to people about the personal satisfaction and the success that they're going to have. And then, you know, the more she gets into it, the more of like the gross underbelly of the situation she discovers. And you also get to spend time on screen with the guy who created this whole system and is willing to sell Mm. you 900 audio tapes to listen to in your car and be inspired by. Um, and they're, uh, is also a really great breakthrough performance um, by a young actor who plays the guy who was um, Skarsgård's upline, who recruited him into. It's called Fam in the show. Is upline is that like your handler? The, the, yeah, your, your, your your upline is the person who recruited you into the geez. MLM and gets to take a gets a take of your stuff, and then anybody that you recruit is your downline. Wow, I am mm-hmm. I am nervous about any. Enterprise that has such <laughs> maturely developed taxonomies. It's if you are deeply suspicious and filled with side eye about multi level marketing things, you will find it very satisfying. And it's just a, it's bonkers. Like there are just some truly bonkers things that happen in it that made it really fun to watch. Um, and I am currently watching the HBO adaptation of Mrs. Fletcher by Tom Parada, which stars Catherine Hahn. And it's um, this is definitely way past the O'Neill raunchiness on screen comfort okay, level. Fair. Thank you. Um, but it extends the world of the story. It's about a woman in her 40s whose son goes off to college. College. She's an empty nester, and she is uh, discovering herself mm. in uh, in new ways. In the book, we the son gets kind of lost. In the show, you see him. He was like a big man on campus. He's a real jerk um, in high school. He goes off to college, and we get to spend some time with him, watching him figure out like how to navigate the 2019 world of. Uh, people having expectations about how woke you will be when you're like a really privileged white guy who's never been exposed mm. to that concept before. So he's learning some uncomfortable experiences. Every time I watch it, Bob is like, I just feel so uncomfortable, but this is really funny. And I feel like that's a, a good encapsulation. It's a great performance from Catherine Hahn. Let's get out on this because it's sort of a tease for what we're going to do in the future. Um, I am I'm I'm holding the season finale of Watchmen mm. in the hands of my soul like a bird because I don't want it to be over. Like I I DM'd you or I texted mm-hmm. you. I don't remember. You texted me. I yeah. may have resorted to texting, which for me is essentially like is, running like... around on the on the on the rooftops. Mm-hmm. And season uh, this sorry episode seven of Watchmen is one of my favorite hours of TV, and I was completely entranced. And I don't care if it's recency bias. 
Um, but we're going to be talking about Watchmen. Rebecca, you just finished recently reading the graphic novel for the first time. I did. In anticipation of watching the rest. Give, give me your 90-second reaction to the graphic novel. Was it all that in a bag of chips? Was it just the chips? Was it nothing? What was your experience? It was so interesting doing it, having watched the first episode of the HBO mm-hmm. s- uh, series. And like, I had a bunch of questions, and I was like, is the book going to answer those or not? And it didn't really, but it made me intrigued. I was so drawn in by like the play with time and yes. all the different stories that lay over each other, um, like the amount of attention that was required for it. And then in the last couple of issues, the way that everything was knit together. Um, mm. And it did leave me ultimately being like, okay, I kind of can see how this might jump forward into the show. I'm really, really glad that I did it. You and um, you and a couple friends recommended to me, like, read the book before you get into the show. It's going to make it richer. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. The, a, fir- a few episodes in, it's not clear what the relationship, I don't think, it wasn't clear for me, let's put it that way, mm. what the relationship was to the TV, sh- of the TV show to the, the original graphic novel series i guess now graphic novel is a series originally but in the fullness of time it actually is just a sequel with a bunch of new characters like everything that happens in the graphic novel has happened in the world of the tv show um so it's not really a spoiler just i think it reaffirms that to get to squeeze all the juice out of the lemon that is the tv show spending a couple hours reading the graphic mm-hmm. novel i think is well worth the investment that's my take on the situation. Yeah. So cool. we're going to talk about Watchmen, the series, when we are back in January. So um, consider that a tease of our favorite of 2019 going to something we're covering in 2020. Rebecca, it's been a great year. Yeah. There'll be probably more book news next year, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm thinking so. <laughs> yeah. Any predictions? Oh, no. I'm tired, Jeff. I'm not ready for predictions yet. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> me neither. We'll talk to you guys later. Have a good one. <laughs>